I heard about uh, a guy recently who really loved dogs. He uh, read about them on the internet. He, he studied them. He spent all his time looking at them. He even gave talks to, to other dog owners. Really keen. And one day he decided to pour himself a new driveway. And uh, he spent all day on this. And his neighbour watched him from the window. And uh, when he'd finished... He, um, a large dog appeared and walked through the fresh cement, leaving paw prints. And the man <coughs> muttered something under his breath, and he uh, returned and smoothed the driveway out, and then went inside to fetch some twine to build a fence around the driveway to prevent it happening again. Um, and as he went into his house, uh, he looked outside and saw more paw prints across the driveway. I'm starting to get really annoyed now. So he went back out, he smoothed it over, he put up the fence around the driveway. Uh, and then as he turned his back, once again, the dog appeared and walked straight through the driveway. He was really, really angry now. For the last time, he returned, he smoothed over the driveway. And as he turned to go back to his porch, the dog came and sat in the middle of the driveway. Furious, he went into the house, he fetched his gun and he shot the dog dead. It's just a story. Relax. No dogs were harmed in the making of this story. The neighbour seeing this ran out and said, why did you do that? I thought you loved dogs. And the guy thought and he said, I do. I do love dogs. But that's in the abstract. I hate them in the concrete. (laughs) A little joke for you English nerds out there. This morning it's our our final part on grace and I want to focus our thoughts this morning on forgiveness. Uh, And I think for some of us, forgiveness is a little bit like that story. You know, we love hearing about forgiveness and hearing stories of forgiveness. But when it's close to home, when it's in the concrete, we really don't like it. In the words of C.S. Lewis, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And that's true, isn't it? It can be very hard. And this morning I want to look specifically at the relationship between grace and forgiveness. And I want you to know this morning that God's grace is our model for forgiveness. That's the message for you this morning. So if you, if you take notes, you can jot that one down and then you can switch off for the rest. But that's the point I want us to come to this morning. To realise that the grace that we have received is how we should go about forgiving others. So let's jump in. We're going to be looking um, at quite a well-known passage of Scripture this morning. If you've been uh, a Christian for a long time, you'll have come across uh, this story and um, many of the the verses in this chapter. It's Matthew 18. And in the chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples, talking to believers. It's not a message for the masses. And he's talking about how we should treat other people. And he starts off uh, talking about how we should treat children. And then he goes on to talk about how we should treat someone who sins against us. Someone who hurts us when forgiveness is the order of the day. And what he says is that you should post a passive-aggressive comment on Facebook and then unfollow them on Twitter. (laughs) Well, no, actually, that's not true. What he says is that you should go to them privately And that's not the same as sending a private message, I'm sorry, or an email even. But you should go to them privately and try and (coughs) resolve the dispute together. 
I'll just cross that out for you. And that way the whole world doesn't become involved in your dispute and you don't end up feeling victimised or vindicated depending on which way the comments go. Now the Bible says you shouldn't let the sun go down on your wrath. I think it should also say you shouldn't post online in your wrath. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And then it says if they won't hear you, you should take somebody else along, one, maybe two people, and if that doesn't work, that you should involve the church. And when Jesus suggests this, he isn't talking about taking along any uh, Tom, Dick or Harry. (coughs) Sorry if there's a Tom, Dick or Harry in. Um, But he's talking about taking along other believers, other Christians. And he expects us as his followers and as believers to be able to resolve our differences together. Why? What makes us so uniquely qualified? Well, the answer, spoiler alert, is grace. Jesus expects his followers to not only understand grace, but to live in grace. Excuse me a sec. So Jesus is giving this message to his disciples. And uh, listening to the message is my favourite disciple, Peter. John referred to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, um, but, but Peter was my guy. He's the one that I, I resonate with the most. I think if he were to write an autobiography, it would be called Adventures in Missing the Point. Um, or maybe Fishing in All the Wrong Places. He was, he was a fisherman after all. And he always seems to not quite get it right, Peter. I think that's why I like him so much. So Peter is listening to this message of Jesus, and he's getting himself all geared up and thinking, you know, all these people I've got to go and speak to and, and sort things out between us. And maybe he's thinking of a specific disciple. Perhaps Andrew didn't fold the nets up properly again. And he's thinking, well, if I go to him and I, and I sort it out and I forgive him, and then, and then he does it again, do I have to go back and do it again? How many times am I going to have to for, forgive him for messing up those nets before enough is enough? And so he puts his hand up. And Jesus tries to ignore him. He puts his hand up again. And he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Jesus raises one eyebrow. And he ventures a guess. He says, up to seven times? Jesus sighs and replies, no, I tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven times. So Peter whips out his pocket abdicus and he Starts adding up the numbers and he comes up with 490. He shows it to Jesus. 490. He looks incredulous and he thinks, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm going to have to get a journal and start writing down all the times that people have wronged me. I mean, what if I get to 490 and then I forget and then I accidentally forgive them again? This is no good at all. And Jesus can see the cogs turning, so he tries a different tactic. He tells a story and it's a fictional story, but it illustrates a spiritual truth. And it's in verse 23. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who uh, owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell at his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. 
Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Now, we're not told um, what Peter's response was to that story. I imagine he looked something like this. Um, (laughs) But you see, the thing is, I'll take the cat down so you're not distracted. Um, Peter's suggestion of seven times is actually entirely reasonable. Some of the other rabbis at the time had wrestled with this, this, this um, themselves and they'd come up with the number three. They said that you could forgive someone three incidences of premeditated sin. And their thinking was is if the person continued to sin, then clearly their repentance was disingenuous. Three is reasonable. Three is fair. Three is what's just. So when Peter offers seven, he feels he's being extravagant. And who could argue with him? You know, it's hard enough to forgive someone once when they really hurt us, isn't it? Let alone seven times. But Jesus says, you're missing the point, Peter. And he starts off his story by saying that the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, when I hear that phrase and I think of heaven, then I'm sort of pre-programmed to automatically go to fluffy clouds and fat babies with harps and uh, pearly gates and all the rest of it. But Jesus, to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is wherever God ruled. God's kingdom. And at another time, some Pharisees were speaking to Jesus and they asked him when the kingdom of God would come. And he explains to them the kingdom of God is right here amongst them. Right here, right now. And he's talking about himself. So when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, what he's saying is that this is how I want my followers to behave. This is what I expect of you. I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth and this is how you should behave. So this really is a message for us as believers. And in this story there's a king, a kingdom always has a king and in the kingdom of heaven the king is God. Okay, sometimes Jesus' stories are hard to follow but that bit's pretty easy. And the king has a servant, someone who belongs to the king and he owes him. He owes him a lot. The NIV says it's uh, 10,000 bags of gold. The currency at the time was actually denarii, and other translations say 10,000 talents, which is between 60 and 100 million denarii. So to sort of put that in a historical context, the combined annual tribute of Galilee and Perea was only 200 talents. If you add to that Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, it only comes to 600 talents. Which means that somehow, and I don't know how, the man owed the king more money than existed in circulation in the country at the time. It was a laughably large number. Ridiculous. If he had worked every day, all day for the rest of his life, he would barely scratch the surface of the debt that was owed. The only way out for him was for the king to forgive the debt. So as Pete is you know, typing in the numbers to his abdicus, Jesus is saying, hold on a minute. What about if the forgiveness that is required is more than can ever be repaid? Because that's the situation that you're in. 
And Jesus wants us to understand that each of us owes God more than we could ever repay. And the analogy he uses is, is this analogy of debt. And in Aramaic, which Jesus spoke, the word debt and sin were the same word. And actually, it fits really well. I found a statement online from a, a debt relief company. And it says this. It says, carrying debt is a huge burden, not just on your finances, but on your entire life. The burden of debt can impact your self-esteem, your relationships, your career, and more. You are truly not meant to live under the burden of debt your entire life. Now, if we swap out debt for sin, it could be straight out of the Bible. Carrying sin is a huge burden, not just on your finances, but your entire life. The burden of sin can impact your self-esteem, your relationships, your career, and more. You are truly not meant to live under the burden of sin your entire life. And sin weighs us down, and Jesus says, you're never meant to live that way. So the servant does the only thing he can. He begs patience. He claims that he's able to pay it back, although the reality is clear. He never could, and he never would. So the king cancels the debt. He lets him go. He wipes the slate clean because that's what God is like. The kingdom of heaven is where insurmountable debt is simply wiped away. The man was standing before the king expecting to be covered in condemnation and instead he's covered in grace. It reminds me of the story of uh, Mephibosheth which I shared with you uh, back in week three. You know, as he approached the king expecting death, you know, it was all he knew he deserved from the way his, his uncle had treated the king and yet he <coughs> receives a place at the king's table with his son's grace. And can you imagine how he must have felt? It must have been incredible. The king's grace had released him. He could live without the weight of that on his back. I don't know about you, but I'd have danced out of the room. I'd have probably tried to kiss the guy. It's incredible. And this is the reality that Jesus wants us to live in. A kingdom of grace. And over the past eight weeks, Steve and I have tried to present this idea to you as best as we humanly can. And we've told you about our inability to to merit God's acceptance, to earn it, just as this guy could in no way pay back the debt. We cannot make ourselves right with God, but that God makes himself us right with himself. This undeserved, unmerited gift if we simply (coughs) accept Jesus, the debt is wiped away. And you know, it's interesting, isn't it? The king could have just looked at the the debt. He could have seen what he was owed, what was rightfully his, but instead he looks past the debt to the man. says he took pity on him, he had compassion on him. And that's what God does for us. He sees how we are burdened, how we are crippled by the sin and the, the disobedience in our life. And he sees us underneath, crushed under the weight of it. And he wants to lift that from us. And it's not until you experience God's grace for yourself that you really understand that. How freeing that is. It changes us. But it also does something else. It expects something from us. It expects that we follow the king's example. Of course, the man in the story doesn't. <clears throat> he finds someone else who's indebted to him, someone who needs grace, and he demands recompense. It says he grabbed the man and begins to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. And interestingly, did you notice the man's words mirror his own? Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. 
But instead of offering grace, he demands justice. Let me be clear. The man owed him the money. By all the laws of the land, he was perfectly within his rights to throw him into jail. It's the one who owes the money who's in the wrong. The trouble is, in the light of God's grace, the unforgiveness appears ludicrous. Offensive, even. Doesn't it? And you see, the man had adopted the wrong model of forgiveness. He wanted what was right and fair and just. He wanted the scales balanced. And Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, like grace, forgiveness has about it a maddening quality because it is undeserved, unmerited and unfair. And you know, clearly this man has this acute sense of justice During his first encounter with the king, he he had tried to make things right. He tried to earn his way back into the king's good graces. Be patient with me, he said, and I'll I'll pay it back. And Paul tackles this a little bit in his letter to the Galatians. Um, There he's trying to deal with some believers who are trying to make themselves right with God by following the Mosaic law. And they feel that they can earn God's acceptance by um, earn his approval by getting circumcised and following some of the laws. And he uses this, this brilliant phrase, He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have alienated yourself from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. What he's saying is that you're now living outside of the reality of God's grace. You've forgotten that you were forgiven. And as soon as we do that, all we're left with is justice and an insurmountable amount of debt. You see, without God's forgiveness, we are helpless. The Welsh minister Selwyn Hughes says that when people say to me, my problem is I can't forgive, I say to them, no, that's not your problem. Your problem is you don't know how much you've been forgiven. And as we think about those this morning, perhaps in our own lives that require our forgiveness, people that we're finding it really hard to forgive, I wonder if it's because we're finding it hard because we've fallen away from grace. Because we've stepped outside of that reality where we realise how much we've been forgiven. And we want what's fair and right and we want recompense and we want the scales balanced. But we don't want that in front of God, do we? And you know, it's so easily done. For the man in the story, it took virtually no time at all. Did you notice, as soon as he left the presence of the king, he went back to his old self. And I think there's a, uh, there's a lesson in that. Just as I was pondering the story this week, it just struck me that, you know, he was forgiven all of that debt, and then as soon as he left the presence of the king, he went back to wanting justice and what he thought was fair and right. And it's interesting, you know, one of the reasons I think Jesus is so brilliant is because he gets it. He knows us. He was here. He was human. He knows what we were like. And he knew we were going to do this. He knew we were going to forget how much we've been forgiven. He knew we weren't going to keep it in our hearts as we should. And so he thinks, how, what can I do to remind them? And he says, I know I'll give them a prayer. And it's a prayer that I would guess most of us in this room know. I did it in in primary school. And it's the Lord's Prayer. And it, it goes like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven on earth again. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And you might have said trespasses there instead of debts or even sin I've heard in a, in a modern translation. But what's important is the very intentional reminder of grace right in the middle there. The British uh, theologian Charles Williams said, no, English, uh, no word in English carries a greater possibility of terror than the little word as in that clause. Forgive us as we forgive others. Grace expects. Martin Luther King Jr. said that forgiveness is not just an occasional act, but it is a permanent attitude. And there was a man who needed to do a lot of forgiving. So what happens when we don't forgive? What happens when we just aren't able? Well, in the story, the man is handed over to the jailers to be tortured. And, you know, I think that's a fairly apt description. I think the jailers have names. They're not given names in the story. um, But at various times in my life, I've met them. And their names are anger, bitterness, frustration, malice, resentment. And as all torturers do, they wear you down. And they give you ulcers and high blood pressure and headaches and back pain and they won't let you sleep. They make you stay up late at night going over the hurt again and again and again. And they rob you of your joy and of your happiness and of your hope. And if you've lived with unforgiveness before, then you know the symptoms. And maybe this morning you're experiencing some of those symptoms yourself. If we don't forgive, we place ourselves in jail. The king has already set us free. That's what the story tells us. We are already free. But when we don't forgive, we imprison ourselves once more. The American theologian Lewis Smedes wrote, When I genuinely forgive, I set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner, and discover the prisoner I set free was me. It's true. Forgiveness frees us. It puts us back in that place of grace. Jesus concludes his story this way. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. And that's a hard verse, isn't it? Philip Yancey explains it this way. He says, by denying forgiveness to others, we're in effect determining them unworthy of God's forgiveness. And thus so are we. Without grace, all we're left with is justice. And that doesn't work out in our favour. But by living in the stream of God's grace, we will find the strength to respond with grace towards others. And we must. We need to. Otherwise, we lose the joy. We lose the joy of our salvation. On another occasion, Jesus was talking about how um, we should deal with each other again. And he said this. He said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. This is important. Jesus expects us to be able to forgive each other because we've been forgiven. Grace is our model. It's not an optional extra. I started with a a C.S. Lewis quote, so I'll um, stick one up at the end here. (coughs) To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable 
in you. So in conclusion then, it's been a long journey, hasn't it? Nine weeks on grace. What have we learned? Grace is awesome. Grace is fantastic. Grace means we've been forgiven more than we could ever have hoped to repay. It means that we are free, but we're still left with a choice. We can either live in God's grace or we can live outside of God's grace. If we learn to forgive as we've been forgiven, then our joy will be complete. Jesus said, I've told you this so that uh, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? With grace. Or we can allow unforgiveness to rob us of our joy, to imprison us and to torture us daily. I know which I would prefer. Now at the start, you know, I told a, a silly story about thinking in the abstract and the, and the concrete. And for some of us this morning listening to the sermon, it's just it's a nice message and you know, forgiveness is a wonderful thing. But for others, it's hard because actually you know <laughs> you've been prompted this morning. You know that there's somebody in your life that you need <coughs> to forgive. You recognize those symptoms that I was describing, the symptoms of unforgiveness, the torturers of unforgiveness. And you know you need to do something about that. And you know, this is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? And in a few moments, I'm just going to pray with you guys before the band comes up to, to lead us in our final song. And if you're someone that, that is just being brought to your mind, I want you to take that first step this morning and to say in your heart that you are going to forgive them. And I say it's a first step because it might be a second step. It might be that you actually need to talk to that person and forgive them. For some of us, that might not be an option. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we have to pretend like nothing happened and restore that relationship. Sometimes it's better to to stay away from someone. But what we need to do is let go of the anger and the resentment and the bitterness and that yearning inside that we have to get even and we have to make it right. We have to move beyond that and say, no, I'm going to let this go and I'm going to forgive them as I have been forgiven.